So I want to a little bit begin this second area of embodiment, which is the embodiment of attitudes, or we could say the embodiment of intention. And the whole of this path really rests upon the head of the pin of intention. In a way, the whole of our life rests upon the head of the pin of intention. Intention is what moves skillful, compassionate, wise action, speech, and choice. And our life and what's happening right now exemplifies our intentions of the moment. Intention also moves anger, fear, greed, self-protectiveness. Intention also moves the unskillful and the unwholesome. This is often, we often refer to this, you know, we often think of intention as being this very wholesome, conscious thing, but intentions often are also quite unconscious um, and flavored by that which is unhelpful. When intention arises, so does attention, and so does action. So there's intention, attention, and action, be it in body, speech, or mind. This is what moves us. Now, a path, I think, a path of wakefulness, awareness, really asks us to be mindful of what is moving our actions, whether physical, verbal, or psychological. What is moving our actions? To learn to have the, the sensitivity to listen and to be aware and to bring intention into the field of consciousness. It's such a helpful question. You know, what is moving this speech pattern? What is really behind the movements of the mind? You know, what is moving the body? In the absence of that sensitivity, we so often have the, the impulse and reactivity that can govern our lives and actually become very embedded in our speech and our acts and our thoughts and our choices. Do you notice in yourself, you've got speech patterns, you know? You have speech patterns, you know? We have thought patterns just as much as we have physical habits. As a, a, I think it was a Greek philosopher, he said, oh, Marcus Aurelius. He says, we can go through life like puppets, dancing on the ends of the strings of our impulses. That we can go through life like puppets, dancing on the end of the strings of our impulses. Without mindfulness, this, this very critical dimension of our experience, of intentions and attitudes, shapes the kind of world that we live in, moment to moment. And without mindfulness, it, 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 we often get, it all gets shrouded in confusion. We can have this sense of bewilderment, you know? Uh, you know, we, we ask ourselves, how did I end up here? are often followed by the word again, you know? 
how did I end up here? And, and it can all feel very mysterious. And of course, but the, what the Buddha is actually suggesting is that we can, we can slow these processes down. You know, so we're not asking those questions anymore of how did I end up here? We know exactly how we ended up there. And we may have more choices about where we end up. How did I end up here? You know, speaking compulsively. You know, you say, I never meant to say that. You know, or I never meant to do that. Um, or how do we find ourselves in a place we'd rather not be, you know, irritated or impatient or angry or reacting? And this is the work of mindfulness, is to dispel the fog. And the path of embodiment is to align our intentions and all that follows from them with our deepest aspirations and values. So intentions are really looking in two directions. Intentions look backwards, you know, to moods, to emotions, to psychological patterns, to understanding or confusion. And intention looks forwards to our action, speech, and thought. It's the linking, it's the linking quality that begins to shape our world of the moment. And our intentions will very much govern that world, both inwardly and outwardly. Are we aware in this moment of the intentions that are shaping our body? Is there a body of curiosity, a, a body of wakefulness, or a body of disinterest? Are we aware of the intentions that shape our speech and actions and how, how we use our sense doors? How we, how we speak to our partners, how we sit in a traffic jam. This is all what we're asked to be aware of. And yet there's very specific intentions that the Buddha invites us to embody that are really pathways to the end of distress. So let's begin by reflecting a little bit more upon this field of intentionality that we're, we're asked to embody because our intentionality very much is our life. This is what shapes our life. As long as we live, we speak, we act, we think, and yet it's not all random. Our acts, our speech, our thoughts don't arise from nowhere. They have roots that we're invited to be mindful of. And when we speak about these roots, it, it's not in the context of right or wrong or good or bad. Or bad. What's she talking about where this takes us? What kind of world is being shaped? We're talking about the human condition. The Buddha identified three primary roots that underlie most, if not all, impulsive and reactive intentionality, psychologically or in speech and thought. And we need to check this out for ourselves. He spoke about the power of greed, intentions shaped by greed, by wanting, by craving. 
You spoke about the intentions that are shaped or rooted in aversion or ill will. And intentions that are rooted in delusion, confusion, not seeing things as they actually are. And I think if we, if we look at any moment of our lives where there's suffering, regret, shame, conflict and struggle, I think we'd likely see the imprint of these qualities. You also spoke about three roots of skillful intention, of liberating thought, speech and action in non-greed, non-aversion and non-delusion. These are very awkward translations that you often see in the text. But we can translate non-greed as generosity of contentment. We can speak about non-aversion as the intentionalities of kindness and compassion. And we can speak about non-delusion, really is often phrased in terms of renunciation, of clear understanding of the nature of our lives. The mindfulness awareness is never attitudinally or emotionally neutral. The, the attitudes, the intentions of generosity, kindness and clarity underpin all wise mindfulness. And I think without them, we only have attention regulation. I think the path is a really an attitudinal commitment to the, to the foundations of intention that bring peace, that deepen understanding, and that are embodied in kindness and compassion. These are intentions that we consciously set, not just once, but perhaps a thousand times in a single day, you know, because we forget, we forget. And in moments of forgetfulness, find ourselves, you know, seeing and acting and speaking through, through the lens of habit patterns that don't help. So the willingness to set and reset this inclination of the mind, to speak, to act with generosity, with kindness, with compassion, with non-clinging is something, it's a lesson too important to forget. This is a cultivation. It's not that we work out our difficulties and then we have kindness and compassion and peace and generosity. It's not the way it works. You know, the Buddha once came across a man standing in the forest on one leg and, and he asked the man, well, what is it that you're doing? And the man says, well, I'm working out my karma. And the Buddha says, well, how much have you got rid of? And the man answers, I have no idea. And, and he, the Buddha asks the man, well, how far have you got to go? And the man says, well, I have no idea. And, and the Buddha asks the man, well, how will you know when you're done? And the man answers, I have no idea. And the Buddha went into one of the familiar things that you see in the suttas of, you know, you foolish man, you're on the wrong path and all of this. And instead, he taught cultivation. Cultivation of the lovely, the healing, the liberating. As a means of unbinding. Now, the seeds of these intentions lie in every human heart. These are not something we import. We know to some degree the territory. Of, of generosity, to some degree, the territory of kindness and compassion, and to some degree, the, the territory 
of non-clinging. And this is what we're asked to cultivate. Now, greed, this, this, this intention <clears throat> or this pattern of greed is, you know, this is not just a sort of gross pursuit of more money, possessions, or status. If you look at this in a very non-judgmental way, greed is an appetite. It, it's a, a belief system that's constantly telling us that we're not enough, that we don't have enough that something is missing, something is lacking. Greed is an embodiment of the belief in insufficiency and the discontent born of that belief. Our, our sense doors then prowl the world looking for something to satisfy us, to, to deliver the answer, the contentment, the happiness. And we assess the world through the eyes of self-referential judgment. What will benefit me? What will enhance me? What will make me happy? What is worth pursuing? And it's generally the pleasant. And so much of life in this pursuit is dismissed. So we need to think of this intention of greed as a, it's a culture of inner poverty and an appetite that cannot be quenched or satisfied. The intention of aversion is, is a huge landscape. You know, that attitude of aversion, the eyes of aversion, it includes hatred, prejudice, impatience, jealousy, shame, blame, irritation. It's the, it's the culture of fear and threat. You know, what's going to be taken away from me? What will intrude upon me? What I need to defend against? You know, sadly, I, I've seen through our various lockdowns, you know, one of my neighbors having a, a sort of an aversion meltdown and builds fences, builds fences. Every time a, a higher fence. And, you know, there, there can seem to be, you know, something satisfactory about that. I'm sure it keeps the world from intruding. But the problem with building fences is that we also can't see out. You know, something deeply is lost in that. Aversion is a culture of doubt, that there's no steady ground to stand upon, that fears no loss. Aversion can be obviously very much embodied in speech and action, and it can be very much directed inwardly in thought, the familiar symphony of self-blame and judgment. And we see the way that this intention of aversion that's often so unconscious and so ingrained creates the other. The other may be external, the person that we struggle with or dislike or fear, and the other may be internal. The parts of ourselves that we find hard to accept or embrace that need to be avoided. I think that there's something so important that we learn in this pathway uh, about forbearance, about our willingness to bear with discomfort when aversion tells us to run or to flee or to avoid or to build, build fences. There's something about forbearance and understanding that, you know, so much is out of our control and, and to, to not take the avenues, 
of trying to control the uncontrollable. The third root that shapes um, intentions, thoughts, speech, action is, is confusion, delusion, bewilderment. It's said to be the primary root of all distress. The, the arguments that we have with the unarguables, seeing or wanting the, the impermanent to be permanent or seeing the permanent as lasting forever, wanting to solidify and centralize a self when self is an ever-changing process. Seeing solidity when there's only process, not really knowing what causes distress and what brings it to an end because we don't understand it. So let's look at the roots of, of skillful, wise, healing, liberating intentions that shape skillful and healing speech, thought, and action. In, in the suttas, it, it, it's, it's put forward as being non-greed, which sounds really rather bland. Um, but this is about the landscape of contentment. Have you, have you noticed, what, well, I've certainly noticed that in, the, in this period, last two years, the art of learning contentment in smaller spaces. You know, the art of learning contentment in smaller spaces. The art of, of, of really, you know, not needing stimulation or gratification. The art of sufficiency. The art of sufficiency. And, and this, you know, some of you have heard me say this before from the wisdom of my grandson during the first lockdown when we weren't allowed to go hardly anywhere and we would make one trip a day to our local field. And, you know, he said to me, Alma, we do the same thing every day. And I, and I started apologizing and told him this would be over and things would be done. But he said, I'm not complaining. He said, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. And, and I thought of the beauty of that, that I have everything I need. It's a calmness, a calm abiding that is cultivated rather than agitation. Learning to rest in the body, learning to rest in the mind, deeply, deeply um, understanding and being at peace with what we cannot control. So it's not no easy thing in life, is it? It's no easy thing in life. There are many aspects to the, this non-greed. I think part of it is restraint, you know, learning to be more restrained at the sense doors when they're hungry, you know, when we're prowling the world looking for something to excite us. How restraint is often seen to be the forerunner of letting go or unbinding. I think in this contentment, this non-greed, there's a, there's a quality of peacemaking. You know, the, the Buddha talks about the freedom from indebtedness. And he speaks about you know, imagining what it's like to owe a lot of money and the weight of that and, and the anxiety that he brings. And then he says, imagine being able to repay that debt and the sense of freedom and release. And when the Buddha speaks about peacemaking and the freedom from indebtedness, 
He wasn't talking actually about financial indebtedness. He was speaking about emotional, psychological indebtedness. And we know the things that we're not at peace with because this is where our attention keeps returning. It's what we keep dwelling upon. It's, it's what wakes us up in the night. We know what we're not at peace with. And it's so important for us to ask the questions of what is needed to make peace with this. Not that it has to go away, but to make peace with this. Appreciation and, and practicing generosity are part of this landscape of contentment and non-greed and training our hearts and minds to discover an inwardly generated joy and happiness. Training our hearts and minds to discover an inwardly generated joy and happiness that's born of collectedness, born of stillness, born of gatheredness, born of unification. So we spoke about kindness as part of this landscape of contentment of non-greed, the unshakable befriending of all things. Non-aversion, non-aversion, this attitude of kindness, of befriending. You know, the biggest shift I ever see anybody, well, one of the biggest shifts I ever see anybody making this path is this shift from aversion to, to the landscape of kindness and befriending, including befriending the aversion, including befriending the aversion to actually make this such a central intention in our life, guiding our speech, our thoughts and our actions. It leaves so little residue behind. It's a training in intention. You know, aversion can arise so many places in our life, not just with people, but with so many things. <laughs> We don't have to look far for moments to cultivate this intentionality of befriending, do we? You know, the, the little irritations, you know, the little discontents, you know, the little arguments, you know, that can so easily turn into a, into a forest fire. And what does it mean to embody kindness, to embody compassion? What does it mean to embody this in our life? How does this look in our speech, in our actions, in our choices? The third foundation or base of all skillful intentions is said to be the foundation of clear understanding, which is embodied in non-clinging. It's embodied in non-clinging. Renunciation, I think, is, is sometimes a hard word for us because, you know, and, and I think in in more new meditative cultures, you know, this phrase letting go has crept in. Um, it, it's, it's a big, powerful phrase. You know, how many times have you shouted at yourself to let go of something? You know, it's even worse if somebody else shouts it at you that you need to let go of something. 
And it's almost as if we imagine that somewhere in here, there's, there's this really little wise self that's somehow going to step forward at the appropriate moment and let go. I, I think that this is not what renunciation is about. It, it is more about unbinding. You know, releasing or letting go is not an act of agency. It's not something I do. Think of the conditions for clinging. What are the conditions for clinging? You know, aversion, fear, craving, selfing. These are the conditions for clinging. Think of the conditions of unbinding, of releasing. What are the conditions for that? They're the conditions of kindness, the conditions of, of compassion, the conditions of generosity. This is what allows the unbinding to happen. Non-delusion or renunciation is really, uh, unbinding is really born of clear understanding. It's about living in the light of impermanence, aligning our lives with that understanding, living in the light of the instability of all things, living in the light of our mortality, letting our thoughts and words and actions be guided and born of understanding what causes distress and what brings distress to an end and decentralizing selfing. You know, decentralizing selfing. You know, I remember the first time I saw the T-shirt with the slogan that says, "It re actually, it really is all about me. And you know what? It's actually not all about me. You know, and that, that kind of selfing, the solidifying of the self, is actually really indistinguishable from clinging. It's indistinguishable from clinging. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.